You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning. It's good to be back with you again. This really has become uh, almost part of the Kenworthy family tradition to be with you on the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Works out really well because I'm able to give Matt a weekend off, which is always, uh, you know, as pastors we appreciate. We're already in town to see family. As Matt said, I grew up in Monrovia, went to Cascade High School, and so we're in town to see family. We get to see, uh, by coming here, a lot of King- people at Kingsway that we love, so it's kind of a classic win-win uh, for the two of us. And then, of course, we get to open up and study God's Word together. So if you are a fan of The Office, that makes it a win-win-win. There's three wins in here, and... Um, Glad for those of you who laugh, so I know I got some other Office fans in here as well. I'm excited to kick off this new Christmas series for you, but there is some irony to it in that the worst singer in the room, me, is tasked with teaching from what I, whether it's the best or not, like Matt said, I don't know, but the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful and difficult songs to sing, Oh Holy Night. I mean, you saw the clip there from Home Alone, when it gets up into the chorus. I don't even know that I could speak the lyrics of the chorus um, and stay on key. I would get off key doing that. So I'm glad Matt just kind of gave me the first verse to focus on. I want to share it with you now in case you're not familiar with it. And uh, we're not even, I'm not even going to sing this. I'll just speak it for you for your own benefit. It says this, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I want to focus on that last line Primarily, till he, that's Jesus, appeared and the soul felt its, what was the word it used? Worth. This is a picture of uh, Brene Brown. Uh, Brene is a research professor at the University of Houston. Some of you maybe are familiar with her books. You've, you've read one of her books or watched one of her talks online. But she writes and speaks uh, regularly on the topic of shame. And she likes to point out that shame is different than guilt. Guilt focuses on a person's behavior. I did something bad. Shame focuses on the self. I didn't do something bad. I am bad. That's what shame says. Guilt says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Now, guilt can feel like a punch in the gut at times. No one likes to feel guilty. No one likes to have done something wrong. But shame can flat knock you out. Shame, feelings of shame contribute to anxiety, depression, substance abuse, sometimes even self-harm. And, and shame often comes or arises from the failure for you and I to meet certain expectations. And those expectations can vary pretty widely from person to person. I'm gonna speak generally for, for just a moment. This is some of what Brene Brown gets into, but she says for women, shame is often tied to a set of unobtainable and conflicting expectations of who you're supposed to be for your family, your friends, your church, your coworkers, your community, like you got all these different people you're trying to, to do things for, and it's the, the failure to feel like you're meeting all of those needs that can lead to, to shame. For men, it's a little bit easier. Shame isn't uh, generally tied to competing expectations, it's the failure to meet one expectation, and that expectation is to be strong. Men, generally speaking, again, don't want to appear weak physically, emotionally, or even professionally, which probably explains why Thursday at Thanksgiving, my brother and I got into a, an impromptu contest over who could bench press you know, the most weight. So we went down in the basement, I haven't tried to max out on bench for years, I'm not gonna tell you what I put up because it wasn't very impressive, but I'm also sore this morning from it, and it just, 
men don't want to appear weak. And research at Boston College has confirmed this to be, again, generally true. Researchers at Boston College conducted a survey asking people what they needed to do to conform to cultural norms. And these are the top three answers that American men gave. American men said, I need to show emotional control, I need to put work first, and I need to pursue power, strength. Top answers for American women were, I need to be nice, I need to be thin, and I need to use every available resource to improve my appearance and then also to help other people. So they feel like I need to be helpful to others, I need to look good while I'm doing it. Like this is one of the expectations as a cultural norm. And whether these results describe you perfectly or not, I think we all can confess that there are times we, we struggle with questions of self-worth. Like, am I cutting it? Do, do I really matter to the people in my life? Like, why do I sometimes feel like an imposter? Like, everyone thinks I know what I'm doing. I know I don't have the slightest idea what I'm doing, and it feels like any moment the other shoe's gonna drop, people are gonna find out I'm a fraud. Maybe people would be better off without me. Am I a mistake? And so we want to talk a little bit about this today. I want to talk about how you and I can find lasting value that, that far exceeds these highs and lows, that we can have value and worth even when we fail to meet expectations, ours or expectations from somebody else. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it, turn with me to John chapter 1. John is in the, the New Testament it's about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. We're going to have these words on the screen, but if, if you got a Bible with you or a, a Bible app, I'd encourage you to open it up with me. There are four books that talk about the life and ministry of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. And they all tell the same story of Jesus Christ and his life. Three of them tell the, the Christmas story. Mark kind of skips past Christmas. just He wants to get to the cross as fast as possible. But Matthew, Luke, and John all talk about Christmas. They all do so in their own unique way. John gives us sort of a philosophical statement about who Jesus is and the significance of his coming. And I'm going to read it to you this morning. It's John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 14. And I'm going to ask you if you would, and if you're able this morning, stand with me as I read uh, these words. This is the introduction to the good news of Jesus Christ. It's recorded by John. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word. What we're going to find here in just a moment is that the word is, is code for Jesus. So when you hear word, think of Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, verse 6 gives us kind of an aside. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not the author John, it's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He was kind of paving the way for Jesus to come. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and, through the, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And then verse 14 says, the word became flesh. That's Christmas. 
Jesus, who existed from all eternity, became flesh. He entered into this world. Big fancy word we use for it is the incarnation. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only one and only son who came from the Father. And then it says full of, what's the first word? Grace and truth, full of grace and truth. It's the word of the Lord, amen? amen. You may have a seat. Here's the sermon in one sentence. Matt gave me this sentence. I thought it was uh, very appropriate for the message. Here's the sermon in a sentence. God sent his son to show our weary souls how valuable we are to him. Just this past Friday, uh, my family and I, part of our family, went to the movies. This is kind of also a Kenworthy family tradition that on Black Friday, uh, some of the family goes shopping for Christmas presents. Uh, some of the guys, my brother and dad and I, take uh, my nieces and nephews, and we, we first go to Taco Bell for lunch um, because Taco Bell's awesome, number one. And two, it's very different from what we have for Thanksgiving, so we go eat at Taco Bell. Then we'll go see a movie. We've been doing this since 2008. And uh, we saw during the, the previews, there was a preview for this new Pixar movie called Soul. Soul, S-O-U-L. I've, I've not heard of this movie before. Maybe you had... Um, but based upon the preview, it seems that this movie is going to be all about the, the deepest longings you and I have as human beings, the, the longing for value and worth that we all search for. Disney understands this is something everybody is searching for, significance, value, worth, so much so that they're making a kid's movie about it called, called Soul. God understands that we're searching for this too, which is why he sent his son. God sent his son to show our weary souls how valuable we are to him. And so what we wanna ask this morning is how does Jesus give us an enduring worth and value that is, is better than our highest high and is also stronger than our, than our lowest low so that we can find a value that um, is bigger than our failures. You are not your worst failure, but you're also more than your greatest Success. Like, how does Jesus give us this type of value? And the answer comes in verse 14. If you look at it again with me, it says, The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father who came full of grace and truth. Here's why this is important. My son is uh, almost 18 months old. He'll turn 18 months in, in January. And if he's going to thrive, already we've learned, if, he, if he's going to thrive, he, he needs both support and then he also needs structure. Like he needs to know he's loved unconditionally, but he also needs someone to teach him things that he doesn't know, otherwise he's going to hurt himself. I'll give you for an example. He already loves to sit in front of the, the Christmas tree. And so we'll sit there and we'll, we'll read books together. Reading's his favorite thing to do. And so we'll sit there with the books and he'll occasionally we'll look up and we'll touch the ornaments on the tree or play with a little plastic nativity set that's down there at the the base of the tree, and he loves doing that. It's a safe place for him to be. And every once in a while, he'll reach up and he'll go to grab the cord of the tree or you know, take an ornament, shake it like an 18-month-old does, and I'll have to grab his hand and I'll say, you know, no, don't touch, or, or be gentle. We have to be gentle with these, like he needs someone to tell him that. Friday, for the first time ever, he bit me. Bit me. And he's bit on accident before, but he bit me on purpose. Not, not because we were at the tree and I stopped his hand, but he wanted me to take him somewhere um, to see something, see family, see the Christmas tree at my, my parents' house, and I, I didn't do it. So he bit me right here on the inseam of my, of my jeans. I still see little teeth marks from where he got it. He got in there really good. 
And so I picked him up real fast and I went around the corner and I took his little face in between these two fingers like this. And I lifted it up, I was gentle with him, but lifted it up so that we looked each other in the eye. And I said, I said, we don't bite, son, we don't bite. And he tried to look away, you know, he's looking, he doesn't want to look, and I looked in the eye. I said, son, we don't, we don't bite. Then I gave him a kiss and I told him, hey, daddy loves you. And then I continued to hold him for a period of time until we had a laugh about something else. Like not related to what he wanted, not related to the bite, but we laughed about something else. And then I, I put him down. Like he needs to understand that even when he's done something wrong, even when he's disappointed me in some way, like I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here and I love you. And when, when he knows in his own toddler mind, like I'm accepted. This is a safe place where I'm loved, but I'm also gonna be protected by dad. When I wander too far or I do something wrong, dad's going to correct me. He can begin to get a sense of safety, value, and worth. That's how these things, that's how these things work. Teens need this just as much as, as little children, maybe even more. If you have teenagers, they need the space to exercise new levels of independence while also knowing when they fail, mom and dad are a safe place for them to return. They need to know that's a safe place, but they also need rules and structure to hold them accountable. Now, they're going to tell you that they're old enough that they don't need a curfew anymore, right? And maybe they're going to they're resist any rules that you put out there about, you know, phone usage. You may have even had this battle over Thanksgiving, how much they're on their phone. You tell them to put their phone away. They're going to resist that. But if you talk to a, a young person, teenager, who has no one at home offering them guidance Knowing, no one at home telling them what's, what's good and what's bad, what will keep them safe, what will hurt them, they struggle to know who they are. Because part of finding our value is knowing we have someone who loves us enough to look out for us, because truth be told, kids and teens, they don't know everything. And, and here's the thing, I know that's kind of funny, right? Because they, like, that we think they would. But as we get older, nothing changes, right? I mean, you have it all figured out? Am I the only one in the room who sometimes still feels like I'm kind of doing this blind? Like I, I feel like a fraud. Everyone thinks I know what, that I know what should be happening, but any moment it feels like the shoe's gonna drop and they're gonna find out that I'm really an imposter. I don't know. Like we all need to know I'm loved and accepted just as I am. But there is also a higher standard in law by which I should live by. I, I'm not the captain of my own ship. I still don't know it all, and there's someone trustworthy who's here to guide me. That's where value comes from, and it's why it's so significant. The Bible says Jesus came full of grace and truth, because if you take either of these two things away, we no longer have good news. And all through church history, what we've seen is that, is that followers of Jesus have emphasized one part of his identity to the detriment of another. Way back in the very first century, right after the church began, there was this heresy that came out called docetism. And the word, it just comes from a Greek word that means to seem or to appear. And so what this was all about is people said that Jesus only appeared to be human, right? He was fully God. They were trying to defend his deity. Jesus is fully God, but he just appeared to be human. So he, he, he's big, he's powerful, but he really doesn't understand what you and I are going through. A ascetic might say, Jesus can offer us structure, he gives us truth, but he really can't offer us any support. He doesn't empathize with our pain, doesn't empathize with our temptation. 
And so the end result is you have a God who's out there somewhere, but he doesn't really get what you and I go through. A few centuries later, there was a a heresy that came from the opposite direction. It was called Arianism, and Arianism argued the Son of God was a created being. So so he's he's less than God. He, He was human like you and I are, but he's not fully God. So he can empathize with our weakness. He understands us, but he can't really offer us truth by which to live. And so the end result here is Jesus may love us, but he can't, he can't guide us. He's no wiser than we are. And I hope you would see the issue on both sides of this equation. I, I would suggest even today, most of our problems and pain come from rejecting or neglecting part of who Jesus is. When we overemphasize Jesus' divinity at the neglect of his humanity, we end up with this with this big God who doesn't understand our pain. He's all truth but no grace. Powerful, but he doesn't really get our struggles. When we overemphasize his humanity at at the expense of his divinity, we have a Jesus who empathizes, but he can't do anything to help us. He's all grace, but but he's no truth. You gotta figure life out all on your own. And we we don't have to look to the first century to see how this plays out even today. We could look to our own lives, we could look to our own culture and see how people still emphasize one part of Jesus over another. I'll give you just one example, it's not controversial at all, but if you even look to the world of politics, yeah, that's right, right? You can see how people fight to find value and, and to defend that, that value. Have you noticed people on both sides of the aisle will sometimes appeal to Jesus and will appeal to their faith to defend the convictions which they hold. So you might have members of the left who will, who will promote Christian virtues like care for the poor and equity for all, while at the same time rejecting certain Christian truths like the sanctity of life. And you sometimes go, how, how do these two ideas fit together? Because you're concerned about people in power using it to hurt people who are weak, and yet you're saying, you know, parents can do the exact same thing to their, their little babies. The person in power gets to make all the decisions. How do these, how do these fit together? But you got also members of the right who will contend they want to uphold Christian truth and then will sometimes refuse to treat certain groups, like let's say, for example, refugees, with the dignity God affords all people created in his image. And you again want to say, how do these two things fit together? These don't fit well. Both sides have something important to say, but their commitment to live by a single ideology rather than embracing the tension of a complex world means they've been left largely impotent. And this is why politics It's important, but it can't offer you lasting value. You need both parts. You need grace and truth. Grace without truth is emotionalism. Feels really good in the moment, but at the end of the day, it lies. It says every lifestyle, every belief, every action, they're all equally valid. That's that's not true. But on the other side, truth without grace is legalism. It gives you a foundation by which you can live, but at the end of the day, it it kills. You imagine your parents giving you a long list of rules, but never giving you a hug. Never sharing a laugh with you. That's suffocating. It makes me think of um, the story in the Gospels where there was the woman caught in the act of adultery. Some of you may remember this story that there, there are a group of people concerned only with truth who catch this woman in the act They drag her before Jesus, they throw her down, and they say, teacher, the law says that we are to stone a person like this. The truth says this is how we handle this. What what do you say? The Bible says Jesus looks at the woman, looks at them, he he bends down and he starts to write something in the the dirt. 
And after a while, he stands back up and he, he looks at the woman, he looks at them, and he says, let the person who's without sin cast the first stone. Jesus bends down again, he starts to write in the dirt. The Bible says one by one, all the accusers, starting with the oldest and going to the youngest, left until it's just Jesus and the woman. Jesus stands up, notices there's no one around again, and he asks the woman, he says, woman, who is left to condemn you? She says, no one, sir. So Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Which seems, if you stop right there, that's a story all about grace, right? These people who cared about truth, Jesus is saying, no, it's all about grace, but he goes on to add to that, go therefore and leave your life of sin. You were loved just as you are, grace, but there is a higher standard you are now invited to live into. There's a greater obedience for you, truth. We need both grace and truth to find true identity and value in life. There's a, there's a passage very similar to John chapter one, which we read earlier. It comes from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and it says this in Hebrews one, verse three. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Imprint in the, the Greek language, what this is written in, is the word character. If you put it in English letters, it looks like this. Any, any guess what word we get from this? Character, it's the word character. If Jesus has the character of God, then whatever Jesus is like, God is like as well. And if you or I are created in the image of God, it means we will only find lasting value and worth when it is rooted in the tension of who Jesus is. An identity that can withstand the ups and downs of life and the failure to meet expectations, and I feel like I'm letting everyone down, an identity that can withstand all of that comes at the intersection of grace and truth. And it's why my son, who's 18 months old, and the woman who was caught in the act of adultery need the exact same thing, and I need the same thing. I need both support, and I also need structure. I need to be loved by God just as I am, but I also need God to teach me the things that I don't know so that I don't hurt myself. Grace and truth is how each and every one of us thrive. And so if you're here and you're, if you're turning to the fleeting identities that this world offers, that I am what I can buy, I am what I do for a living, I am the number on the scale, I am how my kids are performing, or I am my political party, you're turning to those things to find lasting value and worth, you're always going to feel empty. It's always going to feel like something is missing. I don't have what it takes. I'm I'm a, mis I'm a mistake. You're always going to have someone that's prettier than you, more successful than you, stronger than you. And if you try to correct it the other direction, and you say, well, I'm just going to find value in the, in the people who love me. I'm going to find it in my family and in my friends and in my clients. What happens when those relationships go away and you retire and you no longer have clients that adore you? You no longer have fans, or your spouse comes to you and says, I don't love you anymore, I don't wanna be with you. Or your children come to hold different values than you, and they say, as long as you hold values that are opposed to my new values, then I don't wanna have a relationship with you. If you've built your whole identity upon these close relationships, you're not gonna know who you are anymore. Wanting to live up to certain standards and qualities is great, you should, you should want that. And having relationships in your life that are close, things like tolerance and unconditional acceptance, they're wonderful, but they're only half the equation. And if you take either of them to the extreme, it leads to all sorts of malpractice 
and discontent. Again, just look at the world that we live in today. You got people shouting at each other from the extremes. They don't know how to have a conversation with each other. And so the song says, long lay the world in sin and error pining, like from the beginning of time. This has been the human struggle and the human experience. We're looking for something more. We know there's something more, and we didn't find it till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. It's only in the perfect grace and truth of Christ that we find our true value. An early leader in the church named Paul, he's a church planner, he describes the miracle of Christmas this way. It's Colossians chapter two. He says, for in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And then he says, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So all the fullness of the deity in bodily form is Christmas. Jesus came full of grace and truth. In Christ, you've been brought to fullness. Means when we embrace Jesus as the one who loves us perfectly and the one who can also offer us the protection and guidance we need, then we begin to become whole we can find the fullness that we're looking for. And if any of this resonates with with you, the, the struggle to find worth or the tension between grace and truth and how we tend to polarize these things, if any of this resonates, I wanna conclude by offering you just a little bit of encouragement by pointing to one of the more obscure characters in the Christmas story. In fact, this character only appears in, in one verse. It's Luke's Gospel, chapter two, verse seven, where it says, and she, meaning Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling claws, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I guess the character's not even mentioned here. I'm talking about the innkeeper. They don't even mention him. They just mention his inn. This poor innkeeper didn't have room for Jesus. I don't know who this man was. I don't know what type of business he ran. I don't know what the facility was like. I don't know the precise reason that he turned Mary and Joseph away. But don't you think once everything happened and he heard who this baby was that he began to feel a little bit foolish? I mean, the son of God could have been born in, in his inn. He would have never had to market again. You imagine the, views on, the reviews on TripAdvisor that he would have got? Like people just would have been lining up to use his inn, but he, he missed it. He was, he was too busy, too stressed, too tired, too successful, too proud, to whatever for Jesus. And that could probably be said about a a fair number of us this morning as well. Like the faceless innkeeper, we have quotas to fill, schedules to keep, homes to maintain. We're so busy trying to achieve our vision of significance, peace, and worth, we have no room left for Jesus. But I bet later in life that innkeeper looked back and wished he had made more room, don't you? I bet when he reflected about his life, he discovered I had a lot more room than I thought. And I imagine he even wondered from time to time, what would have been different about my life if I had just made some room for that baby? And so my encouragement and challenge for you this Christmas is don't let that be the lingering question of your life. Don't wonder how your life would have been different if you had just made room for Christ. Because you're not alone in the struggle that you're facing. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Other people are searching for value, worth, identity, We've all felt like an imposter at times. We've all tried to find value and fill our life with value in all sorts of ways that don't satisfy. You don't have to prove your worth anymore. That's the good news. Jesus offers to provide it for you. God sent his son to show our weary souls how valuable we truly are. 
And so I hope this Christmas you will let him give you that value. Amen? Amen. Let me pray that for you. Let me pray that over you this morning. God, we, we confess to you, at least I confess, and I imagine I can represent a number of people here who have sought and continue to seek value and identity in all sorts of different things and avenues and people, many of which are good, but we will often uh, overemphasize one of those people or avenues or things to the extent that it leads us down a path that um, is not healthy and doesn't fully represent who you are. And so God, we acknowledge how this world and us personally and our families can look for worth that seems like it's never gonna come. It's, not, it's only in Jesus we're gonna find what we're looking for. And so we wanna be people who will base our life upon this grace and truth that Christ offers. God, help us do both. And if we, if we swing naturally one way over the other, show us what a course correction looks like. And help us repent and come back to you and find that loving father who will welcome us into his arms, but then say, I've got better things for you, son. I've got better things for you, daughter. And help us trust that in Christ, he can really provide those things. God, may this Christmas we make room for the baby born in the major who became the man on the cross. It's in him we find life, value, and worth now and stretching into eternity. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.